I'll be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, New Living Translation. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sam. He's running to catch up with the other students in grade five and six. One of our our, uh, little, um, well, you know what? I think God's got a a great plan for Sam. And he's got great parents. Dennis and Tennille Schellenberg, and uh, grateful for all the children in, in our ministry. In fact, um, over the summer, we had most of the children in during the, the services, and um, we invited them to take notes. And last Sunday, we were doing a little bit of cleanup after the service, and I found a sermon note sheet that was obviously written by a child. And I have to tell you, I don't know who this is because there's no name on it or whatever, but it was impressive the amount of detail that they had taken and written down. And then it looks like mom or dad maybe even wrote in a few things as well to keep up. But I just, I, I just say that, you know what, for all of us, these little sheets is just a blank sheet that has a space to write uh, the, the sermon title and who's speaking and the date and the scripture. They're found on those tables just when you come in through the doors. And it's a great way just to keep track of uh, some of the things that God might be teaching you through the, the preaching of uh, the word each week. And so I just encourage you, uh, those are there, and if you have children um, that stay in the service, even those of you who are in junior high and high school, I know that there's some who are in grade 7 who are kind of joining us uh, maybe for the first time. They're used to going to to, uh, to Sunday school. I want to encourage you that uh, you could take some notes as well. Well, two times uh, every year we have what I would call an opportunity for a fresh start or a new beginning. You know, obviously January when the new year starts, but also September when the new school year starts. We come out of the months of July and August where there were different rhythms to our days and to our weeks. 
The kids were allowed to stay up later. We took vacations. We didn't have to pack lunches, and we didn't even think about what to pack. But September comes around, and uh, everything changes. It's a season of new beginnings, new grades, new schools, new teachers, new classrooms, new routines for all of us. And as a church, our calendar in many ways aligns more with the um, school calendar than with an annual calendar. September is the month of kickoffs and ministry launches. And so this is the time when we encourage you to think about where you will serve and how you will connect. And if Sunday church attendance wasn't consistent during the summer, September is a great time to say, we will be there every week. It will be a priority for us. And so September is a great time to launch a new sermon series. You should probably know that when we do a series of messages, it's not based on what is of personal interest to myself or any other staff member. It's not based on on what's popular on the internet or what everybody else is talking about. It begins with asking God for direction by praying, God, what is it that we at TCC need to hear from you? What do you want to say to us and where do you want to say it from? As a staff team, we started to pray back in May and June already for the fall. In fact, we had just launched the the Joseph series, and we were already thinking ahead to this fall. And in June, at a day of prayer, this had already been something that we had been put out there, and we were praying and thinking about it. We had a day of silence and solitude with our staff, and I took the time just to read through the Gospel of Mark in one sitting from beginning to end. It doesn't really take that long, and um, just was asking God for confirmation and clarity about this direction. Is this, God, what you need, uh, need us to consider for the fall? And the answer seemed to be a resounding yes. And so in July, Pastor Adam spent some time laying out some of the passages that we would be looking at over the course of the next few months. We put a speaking schedule together. And really, the way it is wonderfully laid out is we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark from now through till Easter. That may seem like a long time, but we're going to go right into and through the Advent season and then into the new year. And the interesting thing about the Gospel of Mark, there's only 16 chapters, the last six basically cover the last week of Jesus's life. And we're going to unpack that beginning with like Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, all the way through, including Good Friday, and then culminating, of course, with the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter. And so that is um, kind of the the big picture, if you will, or the, the, the map that we're going to be following in this series. And this morning, I have the honor and privilege of just setting the stage. And I have to admit, it is a little daunting. Maybe I put a little too much pressure on myself. I mean, how can I adequately express the anticipation and the excitement that we have as a staff in such a way to draw you in as well? Because some of you were thinking, going, we're in Mark until Easter? Seriously? Um, but, uh, But there is a lot here. Because I get it, you know, a series in the Gospel of Mark in and of itself may not sound maybe all that intriguing. But I want to just say this. It's really a series about Jesus. And a little phrase that I've sensed the Lord whispering to me over these past months repeatedly over and over again is simply this. Make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. And Mark makes much of Jesus. Ultimately, Mark's Gospel is all about Jesus. 
And so we thought about what to call this series. We settled with walking with Jesus. It just seemed to fit. Jesus is continually on the move in the Gospel of Mark. And we will walk with Jesus through the Gospel and discover that he, in fact, walks with us in the everyday realities and routines of life. You know, in some respects, when we say Jesus, we've sung about his name this morning repeatedly. You know, Jesus, in so many ways, is as familiar to us as water. We know the story so well. We know that the Old Testament points to Jesus, the Gospels reveal Jesus, and the remaining books and letters of the New Testament point us back to Jesus. The whole Bible is God's story about Jesus. We know that. Or do we? You see, if we do know Jesus, our prayer is that these messages will be a a reminder and offer an encouragement to each of us to continue to walk in faith and in holiness and in obedience. But if you don't know Jesus, our prayer is that we will introduce him to you through the chapters of this gospel and that you too might come to a place where you will surrender your life to him and make that great confession that Jesus is Lord and then continue to walk out all your days with him. And so let me introduce Mark's gospel to you. Mark's gospel is the first of the four gospels that were written. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very brief. It's only 16 chapters. It's written with a sense of urgency. One of the words that, it, that Mark uses over and over again is immediately. And there's this urgency to it. It's different from Matthew and Luke in that Mark doesn't include any of the details about the genealogy of Jesus or his birth. He just gets right to it. In fact, in verse 9 of the opening chapter, we have the record of the baptism of Jesus as his public ministry is launched. And Pastor Adam will pick up the story there next week. But when doing a series of studies in a book such as this one, there's a lot of important information to cover. And I thought this morning, rather than having me speak to the questions of who and where and when and what and how and why, I would just show a a short video that covers all of this. It's an excellent video produced by the Bible Project. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, but let's just watch this now. It's about five minutes long. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there, because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book. 
who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear. It's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King. And it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant. Or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for?
And that is the question that we will have to wrestle with as well. I just want to encourage you, if you want a good resource, uh, thebibleproject.com is a good place to start. In fact, there's an app that they have. It's just called uh, Read Scripture. And um, it's great in the sense that as you start a new book of the Bible, it'll have a little video like this that you can watch in five minutes and get the overview and then daily readings as well that are all just uh, uh, laid out for you within this app. So that's thebibleproject.com and specifically uh, read scripture. It'll be helpful to you if you think about this even in in September saying I'm going to launch into uh, a Bible reading plan. But let's turn now just to the opening verses that Sam read for us a little earlier. Mark makes what he believes about Jesus very clear in that opening verse. And then he spends the remainder of the book trying to influence us to come to the same belief by looking at the actions of Jesus and the reactions of others to him. In verse 1 we read that the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so in one short, profound sentence, Mark announces his theme and he gives the outline for his book. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And why did he come? It's really good news. And if we break this opening phrase down a little bit, we discover that this opening sentence is packed with meaning. It's the beginning. In other words, it's a new beginning. This is where the story starts. It's the beginning of the good news or the gospel. And the word gospel usually means two things. A book of the Bible. I've already referred to Mark's gospel several times. It's the biography of Jesus. It tells the story of the life and teaching of Jesus. The second meaning of the word gospel is that it's a message proclaimed. And the central message of the gospel is that Jesus lived, that he would suffer and die, that he would be raised from the dead, so that all who would believe in him would have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And friends, that is what is good news. That's why it's called the gospel. And originally, however, the word gospel meant an announcement of something significant. It was an event that would impact world history. And so Mark opens his gospel, this good news, because it has world-changing implications. So it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus. A name specifically be given to Jesus, as Matthew reports or accounts, that he would save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus itself means. He was, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the anointed one, anointed by God to carry out specific tasks related to the liberation of Israel. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was God and he was sent from God. Friends, let me remind you that what Mark is saying right from the very beginning is that this is actual recorded history. This really happened. I could spend a lot of time, and I don't want to get too distracted, but I just want to add very quickly that what Mark wrote down, and he recorded all of these events, it was maybe only about 30 years after the events had happened. And so he gathered this information from eyewitnesses, people who were there, who saw and touched Jesus, who heard and experienced all the things that were said. And so people witnessed all of these events And they were still alive when Mark wrote them down. Now, why is that significant? 
Because if it wasn't that way, if it's not the way that Mark wrote it, there would have been people who would have stood up and said, hey, that's not the way it happened. That didn't happen at all. That's actually not what happened anyways. And so some may try to ignore or abuse some of the historical evidence, but you can't erase it. And so this book is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark is not just writing to inform us of this, but to challenge us to believe in this Jesus, to put our trust and faith in him to save us. In Mark 1 and verse 15, Jesus himself was proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said. This is, these, this is Jesus himself speaking these words. He says, the time has come. Okay, he's there now. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so let me pause here just long enough to ask. Have you come to that place where you've acknowledged your sin and you've repented of it and you believed in the good news that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness and the salvation from our sins? The gospel is good news because it means that we can begin again. There's a chance to do a do-over, to start fresh, and to start in a relationship with Jesus. So that's just a big picture of Mark's gospel, and verse 1 introduces it so well for us. The remaining few verses, I'm just going to look at it in a quick outline of, in this way. First of all, the preparation for the messenger and then the preparation of the messenger, and then the preparation for the message itself. And so Mark continues by announcing that preparations have been made for a messenger to come. And Mark takes, back, uh, takes us back to some of the ancient prophecies that were written hundreds of years earlier. And so in verse 2 he writes, It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. And the first quote is actually from the prophet Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1. And the second then is from Isaiah, chapter 40 and verse 3. It was common to, to just attribute a quote to sort of the, the, the most uh, popular um, of, the, uh, of the people who had written. And so in this case, it was Isaiah. And that's why um, Mark says it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. But however new this beginning may be, Mark is making absolute sure that the reader knows that we have, or sorry, that, that um, they have been carefully prepared for by God. The Old Testament continually and repeatedly points forward to Jesus. You see, today we have the luxury of reading the Old Testament, knowing what has happened in the New Testament. But the readers who would have read Mark's gospel for the first time, this was a big deal. They had been waiting for the Messiah, the one who would liberate them. They were now suffering under Roman rule. And finally, after 400 years of silence, God breaks into the silence with the announcement that the Messiah has come. And so after centuries of waiting, that hope for day is coming near and that they should get ready. They need to prepare. And they should prepare for this messenger because this messenger was going to go ahead and, quote, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. 
You see, when a head of state from another country visits our country, or any country for that matter, great preparations are made to welcome this honored guest. The, the red carpet is rolled out, so to speak, and a public announcement would be made. And if it's a, if it's a limousine, uh, you know, uh, entourage, there's somebody going ahead and blocking the way and basically saying, prepare the way, make the way for this important guest to come. And this was what was taking place here. And so Mark is simply telling his readers that the prophets of old had predicted and prophesied that there would be a messenger that would in fact come and prepare the way to announce the coming of the Lord who himself was predicted. You see, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus that find their fulfillment in the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they're they're prophecies that get met in such exact detail that you can't just explain them away. They point us to Jesus as the liberator from our sins. He sets us free. And so the question remains, what will we do with Jesus? If Jesus is who Mark and the other gospel writers say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has done what he came to do, he lived, he suffered, he he died for our sins, but he was raised to life on the third day. If that is true, then what will we do with Jesus? Will we reject him? Or will we receive him? Those are the only two options. The preparation of the messenger then, in verse 4, is clear that the messenger that was called and prepared for this task was John the Baptist. And this is part of how God was preparing Jesus as the anointed one. John... um, this really is more accurately the baptizer, and we'll see why in a, in a second. But he's named John the Baptist, and, and he would simply be a witness for Jesus. And so John's job was to tell people that Jesus is coming. He would be the one that would go ahead of him and said, prepare and make way for Jesus. And so look at verses 4 and 6, if you have your Bibles open. It says this, this messenger was John the Baptist. It's very clear. There's no doubt about that. And it says this about John the Baptist, that he was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes, Mark adds these details, were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And for food, he ate locusts and wild honey. So what do we know about the person and the role of this messenger? How was he prepared for it? Well, first of all, we find out that he was out in the wilderness. Some people would say, or some of your translation might even say that he was in in the desert. In fact, because of the location where this was, one commentator called the place a dry, uninhabitable depression. Because it was actually an area that was below sea level. Sounds like a, a great place for a church plant, doesn't it? I mean, who would ever go there in their right mind? But that's where he was. And he was preaching. He was proclaiming the truth. 
There was a way that God had prepared for us to be forgiven. And the other gospel writers, they include much more detail about what John was preaching there in this dry, uninhabitable depression. But what we can say about John is that he was direct and convicting in how he preached. Thirdly, we can say that his message was repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he was calling Israel to return or to turn back to God. They needed to do an about-face. John's preaching was fiery and passionate and led to a conviction of sin. And it's important for us to understand this because if we don't understand sin, then we will never understand the necessity of Jesus. And if we don't understand sin, then we'll never understand the necessity of grace. So John was in the wilderness, he was preaching, he was preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, and boy was he effective. Verse says there that all, all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. All of Judea. Some scholars estimate that that would have been about 300,000 people. You want to talk about a revival? People coming from the cities, coming from all over the countryside because they had heard about this crazy preacher in the desert just telling them flat out, this is what you need to do. And John dressed and ate strangely. He ate locusts. He had honey for dessert. And there's nothing sharp or appealing about him. He had a robe made of camel hair that was just held together by a leather belt. There was nothing kind of fashion about him or ostentatious. In fact, this was the fashion style of poor people and prophets. And so the way that John dressed was intentional because he was making a point that he himself was, was a prophet. And it was essentially a protest against the godlessness of his day. And so he made a statement, even with the way that he dressed. Let's look lastly at the preparation of the message, because John's message of repentance and faith is explained further in verses 7 and 8. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you in water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's so much that we could say about about John. We do get a little sense of his humility here. He knew exactly what his role was. He was simply a messenger of the one who was to come. The gifts of salvation and of the Holy Spirit were not his to give. He says one greater than John was coming soon. This one who was greater was Jesus. And he too would pick up the message and preach a message of repentance and belief. You see, the central message of John and of the Bible is this. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Jesus loves you. And he died for you. He died for your sins so that we could go to him in repentance and humility and ask him to forgive us our sins and know that he's able to forgive us our sins 
that we can walk in love and trust and in knowledge with him. He invites us into a relationship with himself. The God of the universe stooped down to walk amongst us so that he could pay the price that we could not pay. Friends, let me close with just three quick, what I'm going to call life-transforming applications. First of all, one of the implications that this message has for us is that we need to come to know Jesus through repentance and belief. That we come to know Jesus. That we would know Jesus as God's son. That he was the suffering servant. And that he came to liberate us from our sin. To set us free from the sin that holds us in bondage. Repentance is not only turning away from sin and evil, but it is also understood as a turning toward God. And so have you turned from your sin and turned toward God? And draw near to him? And the scripture says it. He will draw near to you. And so you come to know him. We talk about having a personal relationship with him. We come when we say sorry for our sins and we turn to him, knowing that he is the only one that can forgive us our sins. Have you done that? This September, this new beginning, this new start is a great place to start. If you haven't settled that yet in your heart, do it today. Secondly, Walk with Jesus, confessing him as Lord. You see, one of the questions that we all like to ask is, what is God's will for my life? We want specifics. We want details. We want direction. But friends, the Bible has a really simple answer. God's will is that we listen to and follow Jesus. That's his will for us, is that we would, we would walk as disciples of Jesus. That we'd be students of Jesus. And that's why we're going to take the next six months to study what was Jesus' message and how did he live on this earth and how did people respond to him and how might I respond to him then as well. You see, as follower of Jesus, we confess that Jesus is Lord. And when we say that and believe that and we submit to his lordship, suddenly everything changes because that posture now, that confession that Jesus is Lord, it begins to transform the way that we think and feel and act. You see, this confession has the power to change everything. And a sign of this changed life is baptism. Baptism is a sign that you are under new management where you would publicly declare that Jesus is now Lord of your life. And so have you confessed Jesus is Lord? Then walk with him, follow him, and live in holiness and obedience. And lastly, one of the implications of this message is that we then also have to share Jesus through our life and testimony. You see, for people who have experienced the good news, who understand the forgiveness of sins, we can't keep quiet. We have to tell others about Jesus. We have to be like John and announce the good news. 
And whether we like it or not, as people who declare that we know and walk with Jesus, we need to be prepared to share the gospel. You see, we're called to imitate John's witness. Hopefully not his diet or his dress, but we still want to follow uh, the example that he said. And so we have been called to be evangelists. And you say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You know what? I don't either. And those that do, they find this easy. But at the end of the day, we are called to be witnesses. Where we simply take every opportunity that we have to tell others how Jesus has worked in our lives. The difference that he has made in our life. And yes, we can declare that he has forgiven us of our sins. And so as people who have come to know Jesus and we're walking with him, we then must share the good news of Jesus with others. Friends, is this our conviction? Is that something that we're passionate about? Because if we just approach Jesus, like I said, he's so familiar to us like water, then what's the point? But if you have been radically saved, then we are called to be his witnesses. Where we simply say, listen, I have met Jesus. He has changed my life. Would you like to meet Jesus as well? Because he can change your life as well. You see, friends, ultimately, Mark forces us to ask those questions. Who is Jesus and why did he come? And so we must settle in our hearts and our minds who Jesus is and why he came. But once we know that, we are forced then to answer another question. What are we going to do? And how will we respond? Mark's gospel is going to help us discover that. And discover that Christianity isn't a program that we accept or a philosophy of life that we adopt, but fundamentally, Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus whom we grow in, in, to love and to trust and to know. And we follow in his footsteps. That is the journey that we're invited to take. Are you ready? Are you prepared to meet Jesus? Maybe for the first time, or maybe to be reacquainted with him and to be reminded of all that we have in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word. And we thank you that you ordained that people like John Mark would collect all of this information about Jesus and the events that he participated in. So Lord, I, I admit that there's an inadequacy that I feel in just reminding people of how significant Jesus is. But Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would just remind us, yes, I want to make much of Jesus in my life. I want to know him. I want to continue to grow in that knowledge of who he is. I want to walk with him. <clears throat> and Jesus, give me whatever I need to share. Maybe it's courage. Maybe I don't feel like I have a story to tell. 
It's so insignificant. And yet, Father, when we think of just the scandal of the cross, that you died for us so that we might have life and have it everlasting. So, Father, you invite us into an invitation to journey through life with you, to walk with Jesus and build our life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.